0: Mighty God and Everlasting Father, we come before You as we read Your Word, as we think about reckoning righteousness, as we read about Abram and how he was reckoned righteous in Your sight, we pray that not only that You would bless the Word of God to our mind and in our soul, but that You would remind us of how justification works. We ask, Lord, for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We ask that you would aid us, that the blood of Christ would be foremost upon our minds, that we would think about this ever-important doctrine of being reckoned righteous in your eyes. We pray that the Holy Spirit would aid the preaching of the Word and that you would aid us, O God, in the hearing of it as well. And we so ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to read Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. In this particular portion of Scripture... We find that God comes to our in a vision. And as Genesis 15 1 says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to our in a vision. And in this particular section of Scripture, it's mentioned a couple of times that it is the word of the Lord that is paramount and important. This is after these things, after Melchizedek comes and Abram shows his loyalty to God, it is after he rescues Lot and instead of the plunder that he could have taken, the booty itself, the pieces of gold and the silver, but Abram wants God and he wants his blessing instead. God now shows up and confirms Melchizedek's blessing. Melchizedek had blessed him from the Most High God, and now a theophany had occurred. What is a theophany? A theophany is some manifestation of God and his word to his to his people. It'll happen with Noah, it happened with Adam. It happens now with Abram. It will happen throughout the Scriptures a number of times. It's the showing up of God in some manifestation for the aid of transmitting his word to his people. He says to him, do not be afraid. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. God himself is Abraham's reward. Not the booty that he would have gotten from the cities, but God himself is. The blessing of God himself The word shield refers to a covering. It refers to protection. If you think about something happening during warfare, where the shield protects the one who is in battle. Well, God fights on behalf of his chosen man. And it's a further explanation of the promise that God gives Abram from Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. God is the plunder of the warfare. He is the exceedingly great reward. He himself is the payment for the fight. God fights and he gives the plunder himself on behalf of his chosen servant. It wasn't simply Abram's power that got those captives back. It was God fighting on behalf of Abram and his men. The word Exceedingly is of great greatness. God is the great greatness of the reward. And Abram is to think that greater than a thread or a sandal strap, as he so told the king of Sodom, that God himself is his great reward. God confirms that here in verse 1. Then he says, Abram says, that the Lord's, I have a problem. I'm going childless, and as a result of going childless, you're telling me that I'm going to be great, that I'm going to be the father of many nations, and yet Eliezer of Damascus is going to be the heir of my house. You've not given me any offspring. I'm old. How are you going to make this happen? Indeed, one born in my house is going to be my heir, not actually one born of my loins. And it is often the case that believers are impatient. What will you give me? Is Abraham's question. Eliezer is going to be the heir of my house. I have no offspring. It's as if he's instructing the Lord. This is what is going to have to happen as a result of me being old and of not having an heir to my house. Well, what does God do? The text says... The word of the Lord came to him. Abraham is instructed by God's word. This one shall not be your heir, God says, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. So Eliezer is out. It's not somebody who is simply going to be born in his house. It's going to be born of him. And that would be God's plan. Because if Eliezer became... The air, that would violate God's plan, even from Genesis chapter 12, which said that from you many nations will come. Abraham is again trying to devise a plan because the circumstances seem grim. He starts falling into the same thing that happened when he thought that he should go down to Egypt. Takes, take things on his own accord. Try to figure out the situation in his own mind. But God says the air must be from your own body. It has to be your seed the seed of the woman, ultimately, from Genesis chapter 3. Then God gives him an object lesson. When men look at the stars, oftentimes they look at them and think, wow, how insignificant are we? But Abram, in being instructed by the Lord to look up at the stars, saw the significance of what God was going to do. His offspring would be as the stars of heaven. And the result of the object lesson was belief in God's promises. And that belief was accounted to him for righteousness. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Verse 6 says, All he did was believe. He believed what the word of the Lord said. Now this belief was credited to his account, Abraham being fallen, it was imputed to his account, it was reckoning him as righteous. Believing and righteousness are covenantal terms for Abraham. As we will see from fifteen to seventeen in these chapters, that God is going to establish covenantal ideas And the covenant will progress through his chosen man. But this believing in this righteousness is a commentary on Abram's faith. And it's a testimony to the work of God in him and through him, as we're going to see. Oftentimes, as we look at this particular section of scripture, theology behind it demonstrates to us Justification. Paul takes a very long time in discussing in the book of Romans and in Galatians this idea of he accounted it to him for righteousness and explaining more fully to us what Abraham understood and what his experience was with God. Paul so expounds the doctrine of justification in that way and we're going to look a little bit about that. But the first thing that I want to do is I want to dispel a misunderstanding of what justification is often about because it's often misunderstood on a simple level. There are many Christians that claim the banner of being truly biblically reformed who also have a very skewed understanding of the importance of what it means to be accounted righteous or justified in the sight of God. Justification by faith alone, they will shout, but then they misapply or reinvent the doctrine in some off-centered manner. This is especially true of much of what is preached today in being very imprecise about the doctrine itself and what the scriptures teach concerning it. Oftentimes, people believe that they're preaching a free grace salvation only to bind the Christian and confuse them on a doctrine which must be met with the utmost precision. It's glaringly true to say that precision today has all been but lost, especially in this doctrine of justification. Maybe you've heard the catchy phrase, just as if I'd never sinned, thinking that in some way that explains rightly what justification is about. Is it the same as saying that God treats me just as as if I've never sinned? No, absolutely not. It doesn't teach that, not even remotely. The phrase is very pithy, it's very catchy, but it's not accurate at all. In the days of Noah, the wickedness of men was exceedingly great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was owed to evil continually. Genesis 6.5 Genesis 13.13 13 says of modern culture in the days of Abram, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. In Jeremiah's time, the consensus of the heart of men was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Jeremiah 17.9. And it is certainly without a doubt the same today. That how many are sinners? Everyone. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. All are sinners. All are desperately wicked. All only follow the evil imaginations and intents of their heart. If men are really sinners, then how could someone infer that God treats men as if they are not sinners? At any time. Just as if I'd never sinned. But he doesn't do that. Here's why. First, since men are sinners, God must deal with men as sinners. Abraham was a sinner. All men are sinners, and that is the way that God deals with men. God never deals with men at any time as if they've never sinned, ever. Christians are exhorted, they're commanded, they're instructed, they're motioned, they're prodded, they're empowered by the Spirit of God. All of the works that we do that are righteous works are wholly from the Spirit of Christ. So even at that particular point, we're still sinners. God never treats us as if we are not sinners. Otherwise, there really would be no need of justification if at some point, God could treat us as if we're not sinners. Justification would not mean anything. The problem revolves around the holiness of God, understanding what it means that God is holy. Completely separate. Completely undefiled. When Isaiah, in chapter 6, saw God, the picture there was that the train of Israel filled the temple. The long flowingness of his robe. It filled every square inch of it. He was so majestic and so lifted up and so lofty and so high that the cherubims that flew there had to cover their eyes and all they did all day long was say how holy he was. And it's not that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or even justice, justice, justice. It does say, though, in the scriptures a number of times that he is holy, holy, holy. And in relationship to sinful men, God must do something in order to deal with sinful men. That is where justification comes in. But they're still justified sinners. He never treats them as if they've never sinned. Secondly, the phrase itself is very Arminian. Because what it does is it exalts man to a measure that he is not at. Just as if. He's never sinned. The ones justified, we who know we are justified, know that we are sinners. We know that we are evil. We know that we have been changed and our hearts have been moved and we are redeemed by God. Even in the book of Revelation, when we see them singing a new song, the new song is about the redemption. You have redeemed us by your blood. Lots of people think that when we go to heaven, we're going to forget all about sin. Well, we're not going to be able to sin itself, but we are going to remember what we have been redeemed from. Because we're going to sing that he has redeemed us by his blood, and what that means. That's why Paul says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he had... Something to glory about, but not before God. Thirdly, this little catchy phrase, just as if I'd never sinned, also attacks the work of Christ, which culminates in the cross. If a man is reckoned as one who has never sinned after they are justified, then the entire idea of the cross and Christ's work ultimately becomes nonsense. Because the idea is that Jesus is the shield, He is the covering that the sinner needs. That's why not only did he die, not only is he resurrected, but he is now presently interceding for every sinner that he has died for. Fourthly, if God treated men just as if they'd never sinned, then we would not have any need of the continual mediatorship. Of Christ, Why would we need him for sanctification if God treated us as righteous, just as if we'd never sinned? You can see that the little phrase conjures up a number of theologically inaccurate ideas about what justification is about. It does damage to the cross. It does damage to the work of Christ. It does damage to his high priestly intercession. It exalts man to a status that he has never attained. And it neglects the reality of the exhortation to live a holy life. Because if we're justified, and that means it's that God is dealing with us just as if we've never sinned, then we can what, do whatever we want, I suppose, at that particular point. Because God is treating us that way. There would be no need any longer to conform to the holiness of his law. Because he's treating us that way. And all across the world, in the modern church, ideas such as that are permeating the way that justification is thought about. Abram had a different idea. And the scriptures teach us a very different idea. Let's see positively what the scriptures say concerning this. How should Christians understand justification by faith or being reckoned or counted as righteous? The litmus test to evaluate whether a person really understands the doctrine is to first ask a simple question. Does the doctrine of justification have anything to do with what men experience now if the answer to this in your own mind lies in the realm of yes it has something to do with what men experience then you're misunderstanding the doctrine if you say men must be justified by faith and then think it is through faith then you've made a simple mistake which may cost you really the comfort of full assurance that you could have as a result of understanding the doctrine rightly. The precision is gone and the terms and the ideas become a little baffled. The doctrine of justification is something independent from anything that men can do, anything that they desire to do, anything that they have done, and is something which is never, ever experienced. You say, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. How can justification, we're justified, how can that be apart from my experience? Justification is something that God alone accomplished in a single declaration about the sinner. It stands apart from the one being justified. For those for whom justification is granted are those who have not worked for it or done anything to deserve it. Otherwise, we lose the idea of justification. Listen to what the Catechism says in question 33 What is justification? Listen to how it, be- listen to how it begins. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Listen to what it says. He pardons our sins. That's not something we experience. And he accepts us as righteous. That's not something we experience. The imputation of Of Christ's account is credited to us. That's not something that we experience. I don't feel that. We have to ask then what is the cause of this justification? The cause of justification is divided into the internal, impelling cause of the love of God for His Son and the righteousness. Of Jesus Christ. Those two things are the cause of justification, where justification comes from. The compulsion of God to justify comes from the love that He bears for His Son. Romans 3 24 states, being justified freely by His grace through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It does not find its basis in anything men can do. It is solely based on what God sees in the merit of His Son's active obedience and passive obedience for those for whom He died. And I'll explain both of those in a moment. But it's based on what Jesus has done. It's based on the eternal covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what we often refer to as the covenant of redemption. And as a result of Jesus accomplishing everything that He has done, God honors that. And that is the cause of where justification arises for the sinner. It's an act of grace. It's disassociated from the one justified. Though he is a recipient of the blessings of that act. Literally, men have absolutely nothing to do with being justified by God in a legal action that way. Now, the fruit, things that will ultimately come from being justified, are things that will apply to us, such as sanctification. We experience that, hopefully, every day. But it is the declaration of God, in view of Christ, about the merit that He has accomplished, as a result of keeping the law of God, being the perfect sacrifice... Taking on sin as a sin offering, and then regarding those who by faith believe that as righteous. That merit of Jesus is accounted to their account by God. And it's a declaration that it's so. That is what justification is. It's a legal declaration. God is actually declaring men who have this righteousness as justified without ever seeing those who are justified. Because he sees Christ. It's like an umbrella in the hand of a man while it's raining. Imagine standing atop a building and seeing all of these people while it's raining holding an umbrella. Well, see, that's actually a play on words there because you wouldn't actually see anyone. You would see umbrellas all over the ground, walking around. You would not see them. You would see the umbrella covering them. The rain is much like the wrath of God. But the man has an umbrella, a covering from that rain. And just because the man is under the umbrella doesn't mean that he's not a man. He's not still a sinner. Still who he is. But the umbrella, the righteousness of Christ, protects him from the wrath of God since God declares the umbrella holders just in his sight, because the umbrellas are the shield, the exceedingly great reward of who God is. Who's responsible for this justification? Well, men are not responsible at any point for the justification of their souls. God justifies them in an act solely based on the merit of Christ. God comes down and performs a spiritual operation on the hearts of men, his elect. Takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart that is able to beat after him, and they now have the tools to believe. And as a result of a reflex, something that has to happen as a result of that new heart, they believe God's word. And in that belief, God declares them just. As a result of what Christ has done. And their judgment is imputed over to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is imputed over to the sinner. And the double cure takes place. They have absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever. They simply believe what God says. They don't justify themselves. They don't give themselves a new heart. Romans 1 says, Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that faith is the instrumental cause of justification. Rather, it means that faith is the only means whereby God will act on the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. It is only by faith that a man will be justified, but not that justification is through that man's faith not that it's nothing that he can do it's by faith alone but that simply means that it's something that he never worked for something that he's never done to merit something and the only thing that God would ever accept is a perfect righteousness because it has to mirror his law and that is what Christ fulfills Why don't Christians experience justification? Well, because justification is not like regeneration. It's not the new heart that's in them. In regeneration, Christians receive something in them that's intrinsically different. But in justification, we are declared righteous through the righteousness of Christ. It's not something that we receive and hold on to like sanctification. It is, however something that Christians must always be reminded of. When we are continually sanctified, we're made more like the image of Christ. We are conformed, we're changed. But when we're justified, we're simply declared just and righteous. And it's not anything that we have done, it is what Christ has done for us. Again, in precision, we have to see that because if we don't see that then it's something that we've done something that we've added it is a declaration that God gives not something we get now Abram was credited as righteous but he was credited with an alien righteousness something that was not intrinsically in him he believed the word and as a result of believing he was reckoned Righteous, credited. It was given to his account as such. Whatever age a man lives, if he is saved, he is saved by the life, by the death, and the resurrection of Christ and his present intercession. Really, to believe is a term which simply means faith-filled. Abram was faith-filled. That's what he was. He He believed what God said. He was faithful to what God's word said. So the question must come, how does one believe? Remember, that comes back to regeneration. But it's nothing to do with justification. That's after the fact. The Word of God is that which procures faith. Without the Word, no one will ever be justified. Romans 10.13 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Galatians 3.1-3 Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's always the Word. It's based on the Word. And it is a foreign faith that can, then comes from us because it's something that God sparks in us. When foreign belief is given to Abram, he believes the Word of God and then is reckoned Righteous, reckoned means imputed, credited. I have a hundred dollars in my bank account, you have nothing in yours. I take this and I place it into your account, apart from anything that you have done, and credit to you this hundred dollars. To be imputed with something means to be charged with something or given something. Abram was given something in our passage. He was given Righteousness. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That's exactly the wording that's used in Genesis. That's Romans 4 verse 5. It's foreign. It's something Abram didn't have, but gained because God imputed it upon him. God didn't look down from heaven and see a moral righteousness in Abram. God had to put that moral righteousness in him. He had to credit it to his account. The word righteousness means conformity to God's character, it's conformity to the law. The law reflects who God is. Abram did nothing to believe. God had given him that ability. He believed then the word, and God reckoned that to him as righteousness. And do you think that this is a New Testament concept? That suddenly it's somehow disattached from the Old Testament? That somehow the men in the Old Testament they believed in a different way or were saved in a different way. Well, you have to remember that Paul uses Abram as the father of our faith. He doesn't use Peter. He doesn't use James. He doesn't use himself. He uses back here in Genesis 15. The prophets will quote things in this way. But the just shall live by faith. Do you think the Apostle Paul came up with that? No, that's Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. But the just shall live by faith. This is an Old Testament idea. This is the way men are saved. What does God credit to sinners then that are justified? Well, He credits to them the righteousness of Christ. That's why there's a problem. Sinners being fallen have broken the moral law. And as a result of seeing their sin through that mirror of the law that mirrors God's holiness and demonstrates to us that we covet or that we lie or that we are adulterous or that we are stealing or that we don't honor our mother and father or whatever our sin might be, The moral law demonstrates to us our fallenness. And so, God requires we be perfect. And because he requires that we be perfect like he is, to conform perfectly to the law, then we need something that's perfect to cover us. That is why God was Abraham's exceedingly great reward. His shield. God gave him that which must shield him from God and his wrath. Where the first Adam failed as a covenant breaker, the second Adam succeeded in perfectly fulfilling the demands of the covenant by his active obedience and his passive obedience. Christ's active obedience is his performance under the law. He perfectly kept the law in every way. All times. He was without sin Without blemish, he perfectly upheld the law of God. His passive righteousness was taking on the wrath of God in his death upon the cross. And in both of those things, being the perfect, living, morally upright, elect servant, and dying as an unblemished, perfect sacrifice... In that righteousness, he is then the mediator of the covenant. He did it in obedience to God. He did it in discharging his duty in the covenant of redemption. He did it because he loves his Father. And as a result of what he did in his life and his death, that then is imputed to us. It washes away our sins, as the scriptures say. It covers them so that they're not seen anymore. It's not just as if we've ever not sinned. It's not that. It's that those sins are continually covered. What is the present intercession of Christ in heaven now as the high priest? Is it that he's like leaning on the big rock with the light shining down on his head? You've probably seen some of those wacky paintings. It's not that. It's him standing in between us and the Father with the nail scars in his hand, in his glorified body, living forever to intercede on behalf of his people. As that famous hymn by Augustus Toplady says, O oh for sin, the double cure. He takes ours and gives us his righteousness. Righteousness. And so, with Abraham, as with every Christian, God accounted it to him for righteousness. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That's Paul's explanation of what's going on in Genesis chapter 15. Now, for us, certainly... Without the word of God, without hearing, without knowing what God says, no man at any time can be justified. The centrality of the word of God is utmost in the passage that we read, even in the six verses of Abraham. The word came to him, and he had a question. The word came to him, and he believed. It's the word. He responded to God's word by faith, and as a result, it was his justification a declaration made by God. How is your faith demonstrated that way? In the Word. How trusting are you to the Word of God for all things? There are things in the Word of God, like this doctrine, that are very difficult to swallow. Because we don't like things that take away from what we merit in some way, in salvation. But how we respond to how the word teaches us will demonstrate our savedness. How Abram responded, demonstrated, whether or not he was converted. Faith is based on that word. It's based on that promise. The basis of justification, the basis for a righteous man to enter into glory is through Christ, Christ alone. He is the mediator. He imputes righteousness to us. It was His death, His resurrection, His sinless life that procures our justification. And we have to be reminded of it. Why? Because we don't experience it. We experience the fruit of it. And we have to remember that we were justified, that we were declared righteous upon believing the promises of God. No work gets me in. I couldn't lay down it Christ's feet the moment I get to heaven I stand before the judgment seat I can't lay down books that I write or tapes that I have or lectures that I gave or articles or how many times I witnessed or how many times I prayed. nothing I do will get me in that's why all of us all men need the shield of God's exceedingly great reward because only Christ can justify us You always hear, when I find a person that says he has faith, I always ask the question, since you're justified through the blood of Jesus, as you say you are, what are then the results of that? Well, I read my Bible, I go to church, I attend church, I attend small groups, I do this, I do that, whatever it happens to be. But not what you are doing that is spiritually beneficial for yourself, but what are you doing for the kingdom of God? What are your works which show forth this so-called justifying faith? Where is the proof that it's supposed to be in the pudding? How do you show your dependence upon God? How do you show God your dependence upon Him? It's always believing the Word of God. It's always following in the central aspect of the Word of God. That is why every part of our service is based upon God's Word. God desires a reaction from our hearing the Word and singing the Word and praying through the Word and hearing the Word preached. There is never anything that we can do to merit God's favor in His sight, but we respond to His Word as a result of being justified. Remember, that's really what we have to do in terms of justification, remember. We have to remember and remind ourselves when our feelings and our passions begin to overwhelm us and we say, man, am I saved? Am I even converted? You might sin, you might fall into some transgression, and you say to yourself, I don't even know if I'm converted. You begin to doubt that. At that point, you have to be reminded about the Word. About what the Word says. There is nothing that you can do to merit any favor in God's sight. You will not be any more acceptable to God if you are justified right now than in 20 years from now or 50 years from now, Lord willing, you live that long. There is nothing that you can do to be more accepted in His sight. Nothing. You can certainly be more sanctified but you can never be more accepted than you are right now. Christ has borne all of our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. He purged our sins. Hebrews 1.3 When he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He redeemed us. Galatians 3.13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He blotted out our sins. Isaiah 44.22 I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. He has paid our price. 1 Corinthians 7.23 You were bought with a price. As... Sinners, we can't save ourselves. We don't even want to save ourselves as unregenerate sinners. We have no desire. Instead, we do what Isaiah says, if we're unregenerate and we're sinners, we pull our sin as with a cart and rope in front of everyone. But if we have a share in salvation, Christ is our righteousness. Christ makes us accepted. Accepted. If it is Christ, that we're saved. If it's us, then who knows? Did I do enough? Do I have enough faith? By what measure will I use to say I have enough? It's nothing that you can do. It's nothing that Abram did. Nothing. Fallen men, no matter what they work, will remain fallen and unacceptable before God always. Because God requires you to be perfect. And you're already fallen. We have to remember, based on the Word of God, as we have been regenerated and saved and changed, our justification that is through the active righteousness of Christ, He lived a perfect life, and the passive righteousness of Christ, that He took upon Himself the wrath of God, and He saved us. And He is our shield as Abram's promise was, his exceedingly great reward. That is briefly what the doctrine of justification talks about. How, as Abram was the father of our faith, so here in Genesis chapter 15, we're going to see a progression with him about how he's trusting and what God is going to do. And God is going to set his covenant with him That it's all based on the centrality of the Word of God and belief on that Word. We must trust what God says. And in that, God reckons us righteous in His sight. Let us pray together. Mighty God and Everlasting One, we thank You for the blood of Jesus. We thank You for His life, It is death, it is resurrection and present intercession for us. That we who are justified might remember that we are as a result of what Jesus did. We pray, O Lord, as we go out from here this week, that we would recall our justification, that we would recall what you have declared about us, and that we would then live before you as we are. We give ourselves over to you and pray that the Spirit of God would remind us and press upon us everything that your word says concerning the holiness of life that we should live. And we dedicate ourselves to you, Lord, that we might live rightly before you. We so ask for more of the Spirit that we would accomplish these things in his power for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.